Hi everyone, I'm Cindy Mooring, the Founder and Executive Chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Walton College of Business, and this is the Business Integrity School Podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, and most importantly, in your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real-world experience as a senior executive, so if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome. Let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Business Integrity School. Today, we have with us Ken Freeman. Ken is the Dean Emeritus and a Professor of Practice at the Boston University Questrom School of Business. Hey, Ken. Hi, good afternoon, Cindy. Good afternoon. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Prior to becoming Dean Emeritus, Ken was actually the Dean of the Questrom School of Business for about eight years, and that followed a very, very long career in uh, the corporate world. He started at Corning, where he progressed through the finance function and actually ended up leading several businesses there. Uh, He also, after that, joined KKR and served as a managing director and a partner there, also as a senior advisor. In addition to being uh, the Dean Emeritus, he's also on the board of Laureate Education, a director of Production Resource Group, and also MC Burning Glass, in addition to a number of others. And here's a very interesting factoid, uh, a global business leadership study that was conducted by INSEAD and actually published in 2010 and 2013 in the Harvard Business Review, named Ken one of the 100 best performing CEOs in the world. So it's a real treat to have Ken with us here today. Ken, my goodness, fabulous career. It's kind of spanned a number of different segments of of society. What are some common leadership threads that as you think back on your career that have kind of run through all of it and what have been some big highlights for you? You know, if I think back about it, for me, it starts with pursuit of personal adventure, professional adventure. Mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed taking on new situations, new challenges, new opportunities to learn and to grow uh, throughout my entire career. Uh, there's something about continuous learning that really motivates me as a leader. Mm-hmm. So I've engaged, either led or advised or been part of at least 25 different turnarounds during my career. And there's something about turnarounds that really puts energy into what one has to do because you're really looking at major challenging situations. In addition, uh, the willingness to take risks, I think would permeate my career. Uh, I've been willing to go often where other people didn't want to go, where it wasn't necessarily the most popular place for somebody to go inside their own company. But there was tremendous opportunity to go to those places, make a difference, make an impact. As I've gone through my career, I've also really learned the importance of and the value of values-driven culture, a purpose-driven culture, and the value of the human element of people. And the fact that really human capital in the end is, in my opinion, more important than financial capital. Essentially, it's the input that really is the key input leading to great financial results. And so often in companies and enterprises, uh, the human capital element gets very little discussion and very little focus. But as a leader, if we're going to really make it work, we have to put particularly strong focus in that area. Uh, I've learned also that uh, building trust and being uh, and really striving to be very humble, uh, which really requires us to listen and to learn because the best ideas aren't from our own minds, but from others. And putting them together is really how you can really create tremendous value. And I think finally, Uh, There's a phrase that we used at KKR, actually, uh, that arrogance kills. 
Uh, and mm -hmm. if anybody has the idea that one can be the best in the world or thinks they're the best in the world, that's where arrogance strikes. It happens to people, it happens to companies, uh, and, and it happens to countries. And whenever that happens, typically bad things happen. And often I have the chance to go in and work on a turnaround in those instances. Yeah, that is incredible advice. I really, really like the point about, and I think all good CEOs focus on that human capital that can get you know overlooked. That defines CEOs, in my opinion, and the humility point. Um, those two are really, really, really critical. I think. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. Cindy, as part of that, I think you know, as a CEO or as a leader of any organization, communication is so darn important. Mm -hmm. uh, and and one of the lessons I learned along the way was, you know, we often think we say it at once, everybody's heard it and bought in. Oh, uh, contraire, <laughs> it takes the average person at least six ways to hear it before we digest it. Uh, so we have to communicate communicate until we're bored, until we're tired. Yeah. But then we have to redouble our efforts because that consistency and that clarity. Uh, of purpose is so darn important for the organization. Yes, I have heard that same thing six or seven times and I've lived it obviously as a, as a corporate executive and leader. And it is so important. I'm really glad that you focused on that point too, because it's true. I mean, and leaders will miss that, right? They'll say it once and then move on and then wonder why nobody's following the strategy or why nobody picked it up. And you know, that's, you've got to repeat it and repeat it in different ways with different yes. messaging and with examples that help to bring it to life. So let's dive into some of those questions, some of those defining moments, if you will, uh, in your career. And one of them that I remember you sharing with me had to do with when you were in the finance function and um, you were moving up through the ranks about to be named. Uh, corporate controller. And uh, what had happened is that you became, I think, aware of the fact that there were some questions about frequently recording, recording restructuring charges or something to that effect. And you weren't sure that that was quite right. Um, you felt the need to raise it, but yet you were literally on the cusp of being promoted. So Tell us about that situation. What did you decide to do and why did you decide to do that? Well, gosh, Cindy, you know, I, I was uh, probably about 34 years old at the time. Uh, I'd been working at the company for about 10 years. And so uh, as I'm being promoted, I'm considering all that was going on in the financial, in the bookkeeping area, if you will, in the accounting function. Uh, and it turned out that the company had gotten into the habit of frequently re recording what are called restructuring reserves, which would be below the line items. Uh, and what that would mean is it would be a way to take costs and keep them out of the operating PL, if you will. Mm -hmm. So if an investor wanted to look at how the company was performing, uh, they'd see sales and operating profits, and then they'd see something below the line called restructuring charges. And it became a catch-all for lots of costs and charges. Mm. Uh, and it became a, a, to the point where I felt that there were moments where maybe the company was not necessarily recording to the investing world uh, the operations results in a way that could be readily understood. Uh, mm -hmm. The outside auditors were questioning the company about this frequently, and the conversations were getting more and more difficult. Because often when one records a restructuring reserve, they do it maybe once every four or five years at most in those days. And we were in the habit of doing it more than once a year. I knew that I needed to do something. I felt it was really important to do something. Uh, and, uh, and I decided uh, the best way to go after it was before I became the corporate controller, uh, I decided to go talk to the CEO, to the chief executive officer. I went to his office. I met with him. And I said, 
uh, gee, you know, I, I, number one, I think it's really important to change behavior in the control function that does all the, the record keeping to be consistent with the stated values of the company uh, that the CEO has been very supportive of throughout the many years, that integrity, that I planned to articulate a new vision for the controllers that do the accounting as soon as I became the controller, uh, and that I was going to call it integrity is the bottom line, not profits, not cash flow, not revenues, not stock price, integrity. Integrity is the bottom line. And thirdly, uh, I asked for his support. Mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't go in to, to, to uh, ask him if I could do this. I went right. in to ask him for his support of me doing this. Mm -hmm. I wasn't certain how he might react, but I did know that he was a very values-driven person in a company where he or family members had been CEO for most of the company's history. So they had oh, wow. roots in that company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, without hesitation, he said, Ken, uh, I think this is a great thought. I think it's really, really important, uh, consistent with what we want to do as a company. And he said, Ken, not only would I like you to roll out integrity as the bottom line to your 200 controllers all over the company, I want you, after you've rolled it out to the controllers, to come to the corporate management group, which is the top 200 leaders of the company, and yes. give the same remarks. This is really mm -hmm. an important message, uh, and I believe in it. And so, you know, this gave me a chance uh, to give voice to my values. Uh, I was striving to do the right thing, to make a difference. And, and I wasn't quite sure how things might turn out because operating executives were pressing me saying, Ken, if you don't have the courage to do these restructuring reserves, maybe you don't belong in this company. Oh, wow. And quite frankly, uh, I, I felt if I can't change this, I don't want to work for this company. Mm -hmm. So uh, that led me to, to do what I did under that circumstance. I think many people in that situation might have thought, okay, either A, this place isn't for me, so I'm just going to leave and never say anything at all about why, or B, cave to the pressure and simply do it. But what you pointed out and what you thought about is there's actually a third way, a better way, right? Was, was to come up with a strategy where you could stay at the company and get the CEO, the very top of the company's full support, which then without having to sort of lay the issue on the table about what people had said to you, force the company to lead in a different direction, right? From the very top. So that if the, now you're the controller, so you're going to be watching the books, right? And the operating executives essentially know kind of the, the new rules of the road, right? I mean, what a way to really support the values. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that those operating executives, whatever, whatever happened with them after you sort of sent out the new message. They certainly heard the message, not only from me, yes. but from the CEO. You know, and I, I also felt, Cindy, that it was my obligation to the company to raise this yeah. issue. So it wasn't strictly a, a matter of me saying this isn't consistent with my values, which it definitely was not. But it was also one out of loyalty to the company saying, I right. think this is something we've got to do. Uh, if this right. company is going to be able to sustain itself. And when you can drive the business case right next to uh, to uh, the values aspect, which is so critical, I think it, it made it easier for me. If I thought it yeah. was contrary to the company's DNA, right. if you will, it might have been more difficult. Uh, I hoped that I would have a, a willing ear in the CEO. I thought I would, uh, but I didn't know uh, until I pursued the issue. Went home that night, I remember relieved uh, yeah. with the reception I got and, and, uh, and really feeling further validated that we were going to do the right thing in this company, which was yeah. so important to me and for the enterprise itself. Yeah. And your purpose in that situation was 
actually larger than yourself. Yes, you voiced your values, but your purpose was protecting the company and protecting the company's reputation, right? And so, you know, when you view what you're doing as something that's larger than yourself, sometimes that also helps to reframe the issue and give you some courage. You know, Ken, I think though, um, many people will think defining moments like what you and I just talked about happen maybe once in their career, you know, (laughs) if at all. Which is another issue, which uh, Mary Gentile brings up in her book, Giving Voice to Values, which is the book that we're exploring this semester. And it's that concept of like normalization, recognizing that these aren't just like defining moments, crucible moments that only happen like once in your career and the ground shakes beneath your feet. Sometimes there's smaller incidents, but, but moments like that happen frequently. Well, sure. You know, and, and this idea of, of giving our voice to values, uh, you know, with practice, speaking up. Uh, it also helps reinforce our values and makes it that much easier for us to take yeah. the appropriate position, I think. So another one you shared happened. Now, this case, I think it was after you were the controller, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. And it was an overseas situation. Yes. And what came to your attention um, had to do with, I think, some business managers, maybe receiving receiving bribes from distributors. What did you do? What was the outcome? How did that one work out? This predated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, okay? Uh, So uh, we discovered, uh, as we were doing the accounting, uh, that there was an issue in Korea uh, and that uh, in our consumer products business, the sales manager for Korea uh, had accepted bribes uh, from distributors uh, to gain the right to provide our products to retail. And it turned out we'd uncovered about $2 million worth of US of, of bribes that had been provided to this individual over a period of a few years. Uh, with that information in hand, I, I went to the CEO and said, look, we've got a situation here. Uh, the sales manager in Korea has, has uh, taken, uh, it appears to be about $2 million in bribes. Uh, and my recommendation is that we need to have a conversation with that person and that he should, if it's verified, he, that person should be, should be terminated. The CEO said, I want to sleep on it. I want to think about it. I said, well, you know, fine. <laughs> You're the CEO, sleep as long as you want, but we need an answer here. And he uh, slept on it. And he also chose to speak to the head of our international businesses. So the country manager, sales manager reported to the head of international for our company. Uh, so um, after speaking to that person, uh, the international person said, look, the Korean sales manager is our best person in all of Asia Pacific. You can't fire him. He delivers X million dollars of profit for the company every year. It would be a huge loss to the company if we fire him. So the CEO came back to me the next day or so and said, Ken, I've thought about it. Uh, this person's really important to the company. I've listened to both sides. I think we should retain him. Uh, the sales manager with a stern warning. I said, well, I'm disappointed. I I respect your decision. I'm disappointed. Uh, Fast forward, uh, we continue to do our, as always, our investigation of payments and what have you throughout the company. And about a year later, uh, we discovered that the amount of bribes that were taken by this individual weren't $2 million, but we had evidence of $20 million. Oh, wow. So I went back to the CEO and said, look, uh, we had a conversation about this about a year ago, uh, and you decided he should stay with the company. Uh, I Now we have evidence that it's much more money that has been taken. I really believe it's time, overdue, uh, for us to terminate this individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you might expect, at that point, the person was terminated. Uh, the puzzle of this for me personally was $2 million. Why wasn't that enough? Why did it take $20 million? 
if there's a breach of the values, when you smell a rat, there's a rat <laughs> and you've got right. to do the right thing. And so uh, there was a lesson in this. And I think it was a lesson actually for the company in this as well, uh, that if we see behavior that's not consistent with the values of the enterprise, you, you warn, you verify if there's been money taken from the company, you take action then. You don't wait uh, to have perhaps more problematic circumstances arise later. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that one changed the course of the way the company dealt with future issues. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it had a dramatic impact. Uh, you know, it, yeah. it's in these kinds of situations, uh, it's hard to, to draw the line between how much publicity do you give something or how, much, how little. Uh, mm-hmm. Word gets around in organizations, so you don't need to put out an all points bulletin. Yeah. Uh, clearly, it shook the leader of the international operation dramatically. It shook the CEO. Uh, and I think in the end, it reinforced for the company uh, that the values mean something and we have to strive to live them every single day. Yeah. You know, and, and I hear you, that was long before, as you said, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act was in place. And so that increases the risk exposure for many companies today. The other point that you made, which I think whether there's a, you know, a law like that involved or not, that a lot of companies struggle with is how do you marry up what somebody does with how they do it, right? And measuring the what with the how mm-hmm. and giving as much uh, weight to the how as they do to the what, right? So, okay, you may be the highest performer, but how are you getting those results, right? And making that matter, particularly when it comes to promotional opportunities, when it comes to opportunities for um, advancement or other or other um, projects that somebody may get. But to your point, word gets around. And so if somebody is getting good results, but getting it in the wrong way, then suddenly that starts to send a message that, oh, that's how you get ahead, right? Yes. So reframing it the way that you all were able to, to say, okay, the how does matter as much as the what. It may take in the company a little while to get the message, as you indicated, uh, but you stuck in there and you kept digging. Cindy, I could have said, okay, forget about it. Uh, clearly, the senior leadership doesn't care. But you know, I, I found over the years, if you, at first you don't succeed, uh, you try, try again, right? And you, you do it right. ethically always through, but that's really important. And to your point about the how and the what or the behaviors and the results, as I think back on my career in so many turnarounds, uh, the issue generally started with bad behaviors, the how. Mm-hmm. The how had to be fixed. The how mm-hmm. had to be adjusted it was less an issue of business strategy or the product or service provided. It was typically ended up being cultural and behavioral issues that drove companies into being companies that I'd have a chance to deal with. Yeah, I, I, it's the human capital. It's back it to is. what you mentioned at the beginning and the importance of that human capital and the behaviors. And that's one of the things that I think is interesting about leadership uh, and, and having integrity as kind of the cornerstone of leadership is being able to then shape those behaviors in the way you know they need to be shaped to make the turnaround successful. You have to put almost an overemphasis on that. All right, let's explore one more dimension of this issue of speaking up. I think another kind of misnomer is, oh, well, it's just positional. It's only going to happen to me when I'm either really junior because I'm getting all this pressure from, you know, folks above me. But once I get to a certain level, then I won't have to deal with it anymore. It happens 
very normally at every level you are in the situation, your strategies for dealing with it have to be different because you're at a different level in the organization. But you have shared two now, one when you were about to be promoted, so fairly junior. Now you're controller, so now you're in a situation where you have to deal with a different level of issue. And then you shared another one where actually you were being assigned to be a CEO of a subsidiary, I think it was, of a, of a company that had a number of issues, high turnover, back to the human capital being important. There's something going on there because I had a whole lot of turnover going on. And the subsidiary was dealing with some real heavy fines, I think, from the government for some, some fraudulent payments and billing practices, actually. And so you had to come in. Here's probably a turnaround. They're asking you to come in. Now you're the CEO. And yet, lo and behold, You've got another one of these opportunities where you've got to speak up. Tell us about that situation. Sure. You know, uh, this was an interesting one. I was, I was sent to be the CEO of the largest subsidiary of the parent company for a one-year assignment. Uh, there was some thought at corporate headquarters uh, that there was some indigestion at this business, that the business had some indigestion. Ken, go check it out. Uh, let's see what's going on. You'll be back in a year. Uh, so... Uh, I went in and during my early days as the CEO of the subsidiary, uh, number one, I had the opportunity to go to Boston to meet with the office of the inspector general and left uh, over $100 million poorer in terms of alleged Medicare uh, billing fraud and abuse. Mm. I also discovered that of our 13,000 employees, we had about 45% voluntary attrition. And this was a healthcare services business, so it's important to have a, a stable and qualified workplace uh, and workforce right. to engage with the physician customers. And third, uh, we discovered that the subsidiary, which had historically performed very strongly, uh, was hemorrhaging cash and actually had swung to, to unprofitable status, but it had not been determined yet. Uh, until I got there and we had to, the parent company had to announce to shareholders a pre-announcement for quarterly earnings that the, the company was, overall company was going to miss their earnings. So this indigestion Ugh. turned out to be more like a critical illness as opposed to indigestion. Yeah. So the business was in trouble. Uh, I, after getting back from, uh, from Boston and uh, paying a large fine or agreeing to pay a large fine, uh, I attended a meeting on improving the billing systems of our company. And very mm -hmm. timely, right? Here we just are paying a fine for billing fraud yeah. and abuse. Yeah. And the meeting had about 30 people in it, mainly senior leaders and other billing people from the company. And they, I sat through the first 55 minutes or so. And getting close to the end of the meeting, they're about to wrap up. And there hadn't been one comment about how are we going to make sure the billing system complies with Medicare, Medicare regulation. <laughs> so I raised the question. I say, hey, look, before we adjourn here, you may know, know that I've recently had an unpleasant experience for us as a company. <laughs> Uh, and I just be interested, well, what are we doing with the billing system to ensure we comply with the law moving forward? At that moment, my number two in the subsidiary, the chief operating officer of the subsidiary said, Ken, mm -hmm. you have not been in this business more than a month. You don't know this business. Uh, I do. I've been here a long time. And what I can tell you is no one expects us to comply with the Medicare regulations. There's over 50,000 pages of regulations. It would be ridiculous for anybody to expect us to comply with the regulations. Well, that was interesting to hear in front of the people <laughs> in the company. And, and so I, I said, I'm not uh, familiar with this business that much to, to myself, but I said, I know when it smells like a rat, right? And right. so I, I went back to my office and I called the CEO of the parent company, my boss. And I said, hey, look, we know there's indigestion. We also know it's, it's critical care now, right? We have a problem here. Uh, and I just came through a very troubling meeting. The CEO just said what he said. 
uh, I've decided we need to remove him. We need to remove him from the company as soon as possible, uh, because if that's what yeah. he's saying, that's what the rest of the right. organization is doing. That's right. There was a long pause on the other side of the, of the line. And the CEO said, Ken, I'm sorry, you can't fire him. And I said, well, well, why not? It's pretty clear here. Again, consistent with the values of the company, everything else we do. And he said, well, he's my neighbor at the lake in the summer, actually. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> instantly back, I said, well, you know, I think what we have here is you've got a choice. It's either he goes or I go. And then I said, yeah. you may not want to decide right now. <laughs> if you want to sleep on it, that's okay. <laughs> You're the boss. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, uh, you really, it's up to you. Uh, it's either him or me. If, if he stays, I am not going to stay here. There's no yeah. way we're going to fix this business if we have that kind of behavior in this company. So I went home and had a delightful dinner with my family and uh, informed my wife that maybe I'll be doing something <laughs> differently soon. Uh, the next day, the CEO called me in the morning early and said, look, I've thought about it. You're absolutely right. He goes and you stay. Uh, and, you know, it was a special moment, right? A very, very special moment. Uh, and in those kinds of situations, there was no hesitancy in saying, play me or trade me, of right, right. him or me. There was just none. Right. Uh, and, and I think one of the things we forget about is in, in today's world, we can Google a lot of things, but we can't Google our values. The values have to come from our heart. And so often I think companies get caught in the using their analytical minds and forgetting their hearts. And we have to put our hearts to work, I think, if we're going to really give voice to values and speak up in these kinds of situations. That is a, a very poignant story. And it also, I think, puts a very um, different perspective on positionally how you can address an issue, right? Because at that point, he was your number two. I mean, there really was no other choice. I mean, if he I stayed and he said was. that in a room of 30 people, right? You were right. I mean, if if he didn't go, you knew the behaviors weren't going to change. Yeah. And that was going to be conflicting, not only with your own values, but conflicting with a company's values and certainly wouldn't have been the intent. But isn't it funny how little personal connections can, can be like, you know, what causes you to pause for a minute, but yeah. he's my neighbor at the lake. So yeah, yeah. I think if I, it, if I had threatened him in that case, Cindy, I, I don't know, you know he might've, right. uh, you know, might've reacted in a different way. It was really right. one where it was his call in the end. I'm glad he made the choice he did. Well, Ken, this has been a great conversation. I like to end on one last fun kind of question. So do you have anything, uh, let's say a recommendation in terms of a book or a, a podcast or maybe a documentary or a movie that sheds some additional light on this uh, issue of speaking up and being able to courageously voice your values? There are three books uh, that I've uh, loved over the years uh, that uh, I imagine you've uh, read more than once yourself. Uh, the first is a, a relatively recent publication called Bad Blood. Theranos, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, and the blood testing startup. Uh, it's a tremendous read. These are great storytellers telling the story, and there's so many lessons in that book, Bad Blood. Yes. In addition, going back uh, many years, there's a book that was written by Kurt Eichenwald uh, called Conspiracy of Fools, that mm. was uh, the Enron story. Yeah. Uh, again, it's written like a, a story, like a novella, except it's true. 
Uh, and again, it, the fact that it's such an easy read and a page turner like Bad Blood is, I think it helps bring to life the challenges and what needs to be done in those circumstances. And the final mm -hmm. book I'd mentioned relates to Arthur Anderson, the old accounting firm, mm -hmm. uh, and it's called Final Accounting, uh, written by Barbara Lee Toffler. Uh, those three books I have found over the years to be entertaining uh, <laughs> and inspirational, uh, as opposed to reading like a textbook, if you will. Ken, this has been fabulous. I, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today uh, and sharing your own stories about voicing values at different points in your career. My pleasure. Thank you so very much, Cindy. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Business Integrity School. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcast by simply searching for the Business Integrity School. Be sure to subscribe and rate us and tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.